this episode, we talk to Anita Moorhead about all things antenatal hand expression. Anita is a clinical nurse midwife consultant for lactation at the Royal Women's Hospital Melbourne, a coordinator for the DAME Diabetes and Antenatal Milk Expressing Trial, and a PhD candidate at the Judith Lumley Centre La Trobe University in Australia. Anita has collaborated on breastfeeding papers and reports, hospital and state clinical guidelines, and is a frequent presenter at national and international conferences. We start our conversation with Anita about the diabetes and antenatal milk expressing trial and what was its purpose and why this was a needed study. Then we delve deeper to ask all those common and not so common questions around the topic of antenatal hand expressing. So in this episode, you'll hear us talking about what were the feeding outcomes after women initiated antenatal hand expression in the DAME trial? Does antenatal hand expression help with future breast milk feeding? Could antenatal hand expression cause an increase in the number of babies admitted to the special care nursery after birth? Does antenatal hand expression cause earlier birth? What were the average expressed milk volumes achieved by women during the DAME study? And we take an important deep dive into the psychological aspects of this practice in relation to the newly published paper looking at the views and experiences of the women in the DAME trial. We spoke about what midwives and birth workers should consider in relation to how women felt about this practice and the milk volumes they were expressing. It's a packed episode, so we hope you enjoy, learn and share with your friends and audiences as always. So go get that kettle on. Tie up your laces, plug into your lugs, because here we go. I'm Katie James, and this is the Midwives Cauldron Podcast. Each episode, I'm joined by my incredible co-host, Dr. Rachel Reed. Listen in as we hubble, bubble, toil and trouble our way through aspects of womanhood, midwifery, birth and lactation. So go on, subscribe now and hear us on your favourite podcast host. Good morning. Oh, good afternoon and welcome. Great start. <laughs> it is my morning. Yeah, it's our afternoon. It's fine. And it could be anything wherever anyone is listening. And also, good evening, listeners. Um, today, we have the most amazing, wonderful person who I have had the opportunity to work with. Her name is Anita Moorhead, and she has some golden nuggets to share with us in the cauldron. Welcome, Anita. Thank you so much. I am so thrilled to be here with you both. And I can see you on screen, but I know people listening in will just be listening. So it is such a thrill to be with you both. Thank you. It is a joy to have you back. And um, I'm going to ask you to just introduce yourself to our audience if they don't know of you or haven't seen you speak at conference. But also, maybe you can tell them how, how you got to meet me and how I got to meet you as well. Okay, so my professional background is that I am a nurse and a midwife um, and I've been around this game for a while. Um, I have also got postgraduate qualifications in neonatal intensive care, uh, health service management and I'm an um, international board certified lactation consultant. 
and currently undertaking a PhD and uh, I'm not sure during a pandemic that was ever going to be a good thing, but <laughs> you don't start these things necessarily no. with a pandemic in mind. Um, so probably my interest in, in breastfeeding and breast milk, ironically, was not born out of my training or experience in midwifery, was actually within the neonatal intensive care space. Mm -hmm. Um, which really opened my eyes to um, the vulnerability of particularly babies and by extension vulnerable mothers and the families that surround them and were we there Mm -hmm. for doing the right thing. So that is really um, uh, not always the pathway uh, that people develop a love of the interest of um, breastfeeding um, and uh, lactation. In terms of working with Katie, I was very lucky to be working at a major tertiary hospital in Melbourne, Australia, and uh, um, Katie James was looking for a job, and I thought, I reckon she'd be all right. No, God forbid. (laughs) Really, you know, how our paths crossed. I applied for the job thinking, I won't get this job, but... I'm going to apply because I want to do some bank work and then um, then I can be working there because I'd like to work with these people. So I thought I'd just give that a go. And then I get a phone call, not from you, but I got to end up and work with you. And we we sat in the broom cupboard together for quite a while <laughs> doing um, lots of great things. It, it was a bit of a broom cupboard and we did developed some great ideas, had some great laughs and played across, played off one another's ideas and strengths and stuff like that. So it was a pretty, pretty good time. It really was. And you were seriously a very good candidate on the day. So it was a great addition to our team in this uh, big hospital that I still work at um, in Melbourne. And um, your influence across the team has remained. So they often talk about you very fondly. Thank you very much. I wasn't fishing. I feel like I, was, I feel like I was fishing for compliments, and I wasn't. I just wanted to say how we knew each other. But I feel like I've just done a job interview again. <laughs> it is nice to know if you've left a love, lovely legacy in terms of uh, doing that. Because sometimes I think when we, uh, you know, work incredibly hard at our roles, and then we move along, and we know that on our day to day basis, we do a the very best we can and you know and then you move along but yeah it's uh, probably nice for you to hear that people talk yes. about you very very fondly and some of the initiatives that you and you and I were able to take forward oh that is that's lush thank you Rachel I haven't worked with you so I'm sorry I can't do this <laughs> <laughs> so you might you might not be saying the same thing about me if you did work with me so I don't worry about it uh, I'm sure I'm sure I'm she sure. would and I have to say like this is a love fest now, but it's a good way to start things off. Anita is one of those people who, being in my career, you are like foremost, um, like help me to to be where I am now. Like you showed me the way, a different way of being able to get information out there and how to create that into stories and information that people want to hear so you are one of those people I think there's three in my career and you're one of them that I hold very fondly and I am so grateful to I got the opportunity to work there so it worked out I was just 
What a bloody awesome time. I'm so grateful. So thank you. <laughs> there you go. There's a love fest. But that, I mean that, that. that is a serious love fest. Oh, an unscripted one. But I think uh, as colleagues, we do influence one another and we take mm. little golden nuggets all along the way. And it's not necessarily always um, people who are your senior or anything. We often learn lots from everyone along the way, be they junior, be the women, be the partners, be everyone. If we've got our ears open, then uh, we keep learning. Oh, that's so true. Fantastic. Absolutely. I love that. Yeah, definitely mm. our philosophy. Mm. So we have brought you on today to talk all things, your favourite topic, I'm sure, <laughs> antenatal hand <laughs> expression, because woohoo! <laughs> you and the team down in Latrobe are the, you, you're not the queens just for antenatal hand expression but you have done a huge amount of research but in one in particular um is the dame trial which is the day if i get my words out the diabetes and antenatal hand expression study how does that end up dame it doesn't (laughs) do you want to talk about the acronyms with all the studies (laughs) I want to say the ruby one because that's my favourite, how they made it ruby Uh, as well. Yeah, well, all of of the studies, I'm part of an amazing research group who are um, both, uh, we are all both clinicians and researchers um, and we all, one of the rules that we have if if we're thinking about a study is we've got to have a really good acronym and then we have to think about what that might look like in a logo. So they were very, very thrilled when I already had the acronym done and dusted, which is diabetes and antenatal milk expressing, which gives you Dane. Uh-huh. So um, well done, okay. Katie. <laughs> the Excellent inter- research, and I worked with you during that study. The intervention was by hand, so uh, it oh. is uh, a reasonable thing to think it was hand. Yeah, it's great. That's 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 Kate, classic, Katie. Don't look at your notes, but I'm looking at you, and I should have remembered it off by heart. It's just always been Dame. Oh goodness, brilliant! So we're going to stick with the Dame study and have a look at. I think I want to go back to the beginning and really ask the question because this was being asked a lot when this was going on. Was why do we need a study? Why do we need a big RCT? We've been doing this for years. Um, there's been no problems. We're seeing mums getting milk and it's having a positive effect. In my hospital, I'm seeing X, Y and Z. Why do we need a big study for it? We'll be right back. I just wanted to pop into your luggles and tell you about my brand spanking new podcast, The Feeding Couch. This podcast ain't just designed with pregnant women or new parents in mind, but also for all of us working in the space of birth work. This is the podcast where I hand the mic over to a different mom, dad, parent, or even grandparent to take us on their feeding journey. Every story matters. It's often through hearing others' experiences where we find our own inner knowledge, strength, and courage. Listen in to hear the stories told of triumph, challenge, heartwarming, tear-jerking, fist-pumping, and how we each deal with our venture into this new world emotionally, socially, and physically. 
Whether you're a student, a newbie midwife, doula, lactation exam prepper, or just hungry for more knowledge, these stories will also give you a backstage pass to the global lactation clinic. Whether you're pregnant and seeking information or supporting those on their journey, I can't wait to see you on the couch with me soon. Oh, and a little favour your reviews on Apple Podcasts mean the world. They're like magic beans that help spread the podcast out for those who need to hear it. Let's make this something amazing together. Um, well, I'd say probably, or no, not probably, I would say that when we, um, the precursor to the big randomised controlled trial was in fact a pilot study. Um, there had been discussions around it. So while historically it, it had been out there for a while, it actually wasn't being used all that much and certainly not within the, the clinical setting. Um, and um, it was more in the counsellor setting in terms of people were starting to think maybe this would be a good thing to think about. So that really drove us to be thinking about a, uh, we were at the same time thinking about it at the time it was gaining some um, interest within the community. So it wasn't actually driven from the clinical field. It was actually driven from um, the breastfeeding counsellors and the women themselves. So then our thoughts were, well, let's try and wrap some science around it as well, because if you're um, thinking about an intervention, it's not an insubstantial intervention is my uh, belief around that is that we um, did a pilot study of 43 women um, and uh, and looked at the outcomes that was happening with those women. It was also looking at acceptability. It was also, in a sense, if we, as a precursor to a randomised trial of what would be the processes who, in terms of recruiting, data collection, interviews, those sort of things. And, and that is the pilot study that we published what feels like it, eons ago. So, um, and then with a pilot study, well, we were then able to um, further refine and then be on the looking for um, monies to to really fund a bigger research one and, and really be thinking this is an important thing that needed to be um, researched and um, but you need some data to go with it first to be able to help drive um, good sound scientific conversations so that was part of it um, in that way so yeah in a lot of ways there was a lot of work before even the first trial happened. Mm, absolutely. I want to talk to you about the latest paper that you've released and the and the results, but I also would like you to just run through us some of the, the findings from this study that was actually published in The Lancet, which was hugely impressive that this had been taken up and had been seen by the medical community, not just the lactation community, as important for us to be talking about. Katie, can you can you remember when you told when I was first publishing journal articles and you weren't very impressed and you said that if I ever got something published in the Lancet that you would frame it in your toilet. I wasn't impressed um, at your journals. It was just that I said <laughs> if you get something in the Lancet. I'll frame it in my toilet. 
Um, that means I should have the Dame study framed in my toilet, actually. Exactly. Well, I remember when Anita came and said, you never guess what. <laughs> it's not that Get I'm not impressed, framed. Rachel. I'm sorry. Can we just make this clear? I don't have my friends on hierarchies of whether they've been published in The Lancet. <laughs> no, and, and nor should we. I, you're, you've had fantastic work published as well, Rachel. We've yes. all worked incredibly hard. And, uh, uh, and now I am thinking, should I be having this on the wall in my toilet? Hadn't actually, the yep. thought hadn't yeah. crossed me. Um, but now I'm thinking, Katie, can you just get it framed up first and toilet. show us how it's done? <laughs> <laughs> okay, great. Yeah, I'll I'll get on to that. Definitely. So listeners, look out for that one. <laughs> a picture of my black toilet. It'll look good, good in there, see? Would actually. The mm. red, the white, perfect. Exactly. Um, okay, so what was the actual question? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, can we go through some of the main outcomes? For the so for the randomized controlled trial, um, it's primary outcome was looking at uh, the proportion of infants that were admitted into neonatal intensive care um, by group. Um, now, um, there was thoughts of, gosh, I thought this was about breastfeeding, but there was a significant concern in terms of um, a study from the a pilot study, a smaller study in the UK, uh, Horace Soltani had identified uh, a trend towards um, more babies being admitted to special care nursery in mothers who had done antenatal expressing, um, but also an earlier gestation of birth by about a week. Mm. So there was um, uh, reasonable concerns across um, everybody of um, is this in fact causing harm it may be we do we think it is causing good but in fact is it causing harm um, I think part of our publishing success was we, we were a, um, a collaborative group of um, uh, medical midwifery uh, researchers there's biostatisticians those sort of people but we had buy-in from obstetric neonatal spaces, all those sort of things, which really made it a very collaborative and um, uh, both driving the questions, driving the research and, and in the end, driving the outcomes that we're able to establish. So um, I think, you know, collaboration is um, incredibly important for us to be going out because um, there is not one group of people who are looking after um, pregnant women and their babies, there are many, many people and, and um, we need to engage them all because that will get us the best outcomes for women. So the primary outcome was really seeing uh, was this going to be causing harm because that was a reasonable risk to be investigating, but then um, also looking at what were the feeding outcomes, which was very dear to the breastfeeding um, world is thinking about, well, you know, is this making a big difference? Is it actually doing what we say um, we think it is doing? All those sort of things. So um, sometimes people are a little surprised by the primary outcome, but it was it was making sure that we were doing no harm. Absolutely. Um, the long and short of that was is that um, uh, we got a different outcome 
in the randomised control trial in terms of earlier birth and um, admissions to special care nursery, NICU. Um, so we showed um, that really there was no association with um, decreased gestation or increased admission um, to special care um, across the two groups by allocation. So um, in a sense, that was a huge relief um, for us as researchers when we were finally able to unblind it, as they say, because all of the data had been done with um, group A, group B, and you don't actually know until the final button is pushed and we're all thinking, please, you know, um, let's hope this is all going to be. Yep, Rachel. Can I just ask what group... A and Group B was what? What was the sample? Uh, so A and B was really just for um, analysis um, aspect in terms of intervention versus control. Is that what you're? So the intervention was hand expressing in pregnancy. Correct. So that was Correct. a group of women who were hand expressing in pregnancy, and the other group were not doing that. Yeah, so it was yeah. uh, women who were, I'm happy to, so the intervention per se was women who were at low risk of uh, complications, other complications within their um, pregnancy because we were uh, being cautious in terms of risk. Um, so they were the, in a sense, the lowest risk um, within the space of diabetes, but diabetes per se is is a risk in itself, as we know. Um, so the um, intervention was women who were um, randomised to express twice a day by hand, um, 10 minutes in the morning, 10 minutes in the evening. That was our request to them. And uh, they received all of the other same access to care. So they received standard care of access to um, midwives, diabetes educators, um, lactation consultants if required. So that was the standard care. And then there was just this one thing on top. And that's really trying to see that does this one thing change any outcomes. Mm. So they were both having mm. this level of care of which one group was having one other thing different. Yeah. Okay. Um, so they, the women were um, shown how to do it. Um, we went very much with a um, uh, hands-off approach. So we showed the women while they were doing it. And in the main, we rarely needed to ever put our hands on a woman. So these women at the time that we showed them were as proficient as we could get them at that point. Um, they were free to ring us for any support, advice. Um, interestingly, not many of them did. They're also free mm. to stop if they're uncomfortable um, and we had some safety caveats around it by saying, you know, please, if your baby's not moving normally, please contact your hospital straight away, those sort of things. So, um, And um, then they kept a little diary for us of which they would um, tell us if they got any volumes and also any feelings, thoughts, impressions they had along the way and some of the women were fantastic with some of the things they were telling us in there yeah that's great you had a huge then, cohort of women as well like this went across was it seven sites over uh, how many six, years six six sites. sites yeah 
Yeah, and, and look, it it, um, it did go. We originally thought it would be two sites um, and our calculations were done on that and we needed to revise that because um, it was slow to be able to recruit to it. There were women who were, um, uh, it was voluntary, of course, as with research, there is no requirement to do it. So some women were... Um, uh, overwhelmed with their diagnosis of diabetes yeah. and so therefore the added uh, thought of having to be in a research trial to do this was not something that they wanted to do and of course they are free not to do it so it actually was a bit trickier to recruit to than what we had thought we also went to all eligible women so it wasn't hand-picking oh I think she'd be good or I think she'd like it to really try and prove or um, really give it the rigour it needed. It needed to be approach all women who were eligible. And that was very, uh, took a lot of time and a lot of effort and um, fantastic research nurses and midwives who helped in that space because they were incredibly rigorous. The other thing is that trying to find sites, it became problematic to find sites that, were, that weren't in fact having this as standard care. So they had already introduced it. Yeah. So we had to get a agreement from the uh, hospitals that were going to join with us that they would not introduce it. So finding sites that were um, in agreement with that, um, that was um, not problematic, but it took a bit of work to really... Um, uh, had that. So in the end, six sites got us over the line and, um, and in, a, in a way I think that probably added to the strength of it because it actually was across many organisations who were all in a sense thinking about the same um, intervention, a broader broader span of women. I think, I mean, the main outcome in terms of it did no harm. We weren't seeing what the pilot studies and what other studies had shown was the potential that antenatal hand expression could lead to earlier birth or babies needing further support in the NICU. And that's fantastic. The other outcomes were looking at, you know, breastfeeding in the hospital. So we used um, that they were exclusivity of breast milk um, which um, was not necessarily defined as at breastfeeding. So in the world of breastfeeding, those definitions become incredibly important. For this one, it was, did they have breast milk alone or not? Um, and certainly we showed a difference in the first 24 hours um, of around about 10% difference of those who were able to have exclusive breast milk for their babies in the first 24 hours. By the end of their length of stay, that had softened off um, to, I think it's about 7%. If I pull up my data correctly, I should know it off the top of my head. So um, uh, it was, yeah, around about a 7% difference um, in terms of exclusivity. Um, I suppose one of the things I think about is that actually there were still many women who had diabetes who actually still needed to have formula. Mm -hmm. So while it made a difference between, um, it didn't mean that 100% of women who did antenatal expressing 
um, were able to be exclusively breast milk feeding their babies. They were 10% better than the women who didn't in the first 24 hours. Yeah. Um, and um, so I think for me that was an important thing to be considering. Um, this was a high breastfeeding um, group. Their intention to breastfeed was quite high, which is unsurprising given it's a breastfeeding um, research. Uh, if you go to a woman and you say, would you like to be part of our research? It's about breastfeeding. If she uh, has not got such a high intention for breastfeeding, she may well say, I don't think so. So we had a high intention to breastfeed. So um, these were women who were pretty keen to breastfeed. And um, so it was good to be able to see a difference for them in that first 24 hours and the result gets a bit softer um, by the time they've left hospital. But this can be important in terms of we know from the research that an introduction of formula in that first 48 hours can really play a difference or play a part in the long-term sort of breastfeeding goals or breastfeeding success, whatever the words that we choose to use, choose to use even, um, yeah. in terms of getting off to the right start. So it's not an insignificant amount. Hmm. No, and I, I think the, the work and the effort of uh, what these women did, and they were those who did, they were... Um, uh, pretty chuffed, for want of a better word, if they did exclude that, achieve that. But we also were incredibly careful that sometimes, despite amazing efforts of women, is that it it wasn't achieved for them, and it was nothing that they had um, uh, not put their effort in, into. Interestingly, we are not able to the documentation within the hospital setting of all the hospitals. Um, at times, it was almost impossible to ascertain if these women were having antenatal milk top-ups if it was required or um, if they were um, having postnatal um, milk. So our, within the guideline of, of trying to make sure that we didn't interfere with um, normal postnatal breastfeeding, which was pretty important to us, is that... Um, it was if there was a an indication that this baby might need another feed, a bit more milk, it was back to the breast, ask the mother if she could express some fresh milk because that will be superior to anything else that's been sitting in a freezer for two weeks. And then, then we reach for the antenatal milk because our next alternative then is, is infant formula. So it was really making sure that we didn't interfere with normal processes, which is early, frequent, effective feeding in the postnatal space. Um, so there were women who went home with a little bag of their um, antenatal milk because they didn't need to use it, which is sort of a great outcome. Yeah. They never needed to use it, but it was difficult within the midwifery documentation to ascertain Five mils of EBM was given. Was it postnatal? Was it antenatal milk? And uh, for the midwives documenting, it was EBM. So um, express breast milk. Yeah. Mm. And what about the volumes? So, because this will bring us into the next questions that we want to ask you about. Um, in terms of, there was a huge range of of milk volumes that even with. You know, what surprises me is that 
these women were expressing from 36 weeks of pregnancy twice a day. And we hear so often or in places where I've worked from the UK to Australia to now where I am here, women are being told to express anywhere from twice a day to eight times a day. Um, Yep. Antenatally (laughs) and also from earlier gestations. So I've heard just crazy gestations, which uh, puts the willies up in me when someone at 28 weeks pregnant has said to me, oh, I've been told to start expressing and you're nodding. So it's, you've heard that as well. Um, and also, so thinking about that this was done very safely um, with women who had diabetes, but they were in the safe category. However, there was a shorter period of time or there was 36 weeks twice a day and the ranges of milk were vast. Mm. So we did go with and as a collaboration with our neonatal and obstetric partners that 36 weeks seemed to be um, a good starting point. Um, not many of these women would be going post-term in terms of their pregnancies, whatever post-term is a de- defined as. Um, now, yeah. um, <laughs> so then we, uh, the women were asked to express twice a day. And when we were able to get the data from the women, um, the number of the frequency on average the median number was 22 times. So there were a lot of women who were doing a lot of expressing. So there were women who did more, there were women who did less. The reasons that some women did less were um, they gave birth the next day by chance. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's not that they were not intentioned to be staying in with the trial. They gave birth the next day, the day after. So someone who had low frequency Other women became disengaged with it. You saw that they would do it a little bit, um, I would say, hit and miss. Other women became unwell um, and they, you know, said, you can read in their diaries things like, I had a cold or I was really busy or we went away for the weekend, didn't do it. And, uh, of course, there was no judgment from now because this is real women's lives. This is what is a real, trying to understand from research, this is what really happens. Uh, So there was a lot of expressing went on um, and uh, but of the expressing um, the volume of milk, as you're quite right, um, there was a huge variation in terms of volumes. But the median amount, so the amount that we um, saw was 5.5 mils of uh, of all the women who expressed 5.5 mils was the median amount. that was not per express, that was total. Mm-hmm. So, um, and I think that was the surprise to um, many is that I think there was a belief that it was a lot more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, we did see women with a lot more. Uh, we had one woman who was in the 900s. Um, um, the, the next uh, woman was in the 400s. Um, I'm just looking at my data here. The next one was in the 
um, low 200s and then it starts to go uh, down from that. So we had a couple of women who I would sort of talk about them being really outliers as in mm. their data is so wildly different to so many other women. Um, and I suppose for some, I, I think about it as we we remember the extraordinary. So if you're a midwife yeah. on a ward and you see a woman who comes in with a known extraordinary amount, you're like, wow, this is what happens. Isn't that great? Yeah. However, in our um, study is that we know that 25% of women um, got nothing or less than a mil. So less than a mil to zero. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was not related necessarily to fee, um, to frequency. So there were women who were expressing a lot, 20, 30, 40 times and still getting nothing. And I am so indebted to them that they actually did the intervention as we asked because it's actually mm. given us an enormous amount of information that we can help women understand if they don't get very much, that's okay because that's normal because yeah. um, yeah. it does worry them. Yeah, absolutely. Just wondering, I'll let me remember now what the question was because this is what happens. I have questions, but I'm listening and then I forget what my question is. Yeah. <laughs> so, my, my, no, my question was, no, it was about what determined whether a baby need, needed, that's in quotes, to have a top-up. Like, was that based on volume that the baby was having or was that based on signs of hyperglycemia or what was that based on? There, I remembered. Well done. Great. <laughs> Got Good. there. Yeah. So um, that was important for us to think about. So all of the hospitals that were engaged with their neonatal units were almost uh, identical in terms of their management of um, infant monitoring um, after birth, which was routinely um, three blood sugars and um, and then treatment according to those, be that extra feed, extra breast milk um, on signs of hypoglycemia from the baby so they got through whether they liked it or not. We did use um, more accurate point of care Um, blood glucose monitoring uh, to increase the accuracy. So um, we were able to get a point of care um, glucose um, monitors for the postnatal ward because if you're in the NICU, you are having the, you know, through the blood gas machine, the highest quality ascertainment of blood glucose. Um, but the dextrose sticks that are used routinely within a um, postnatal ward have a degree of inaccuracy, particularly at lower levels. Mm. So for this study, we wanted to increase the accuracy of knowing, do we truly have hypoglycemia or not? So the routine ones were there. Um, so we did that. It was also uh, clinicians um, were, which is real world, which is if they think this baby, even if they're outside their three blood sugars and appear to have stabilised, yet this baby is now a little bit further down the track and is actually showing some other symptoms of being unwell or jittery or hypoglycemia is that they were free to enact upon that because they needed to and they would therefore within the bounds of their guideline um, do routine care Um, however that was escalated so it was no weighing of individual feeds per se 
um, it was based on uh, usual practice of um, baby uh, midwife assessment of feeds. Um, are they feeding? Are they not? Can you hear swallowing? Can you this? But also based around the signs of infant hypoglycemia. Does and then help? just a comment, because yes, it does. And then just to comment, because I think we're then moving on to what might answer some of this. So for looking at this from a perspective of pregnancy being a time of building self-trust, this is a group of women who have been given a label of gestational diabetes, which we've done podcasts on. And then, and I'm really pleased that you said there was an intervention to do expressing, because it is an intervention. It's, you know, intervention to the norm. So then they're doing expressing. I'm just wondering how, how the women felt by the time they then had babies and then they're not, you know, so they've got gestational diabetes. They're not necessarily seeing a lot of milk coming out of their bodies. What that does to their self-trust moving forward to then breastfeeding their babies. I would say... That is something we need to be concerned about. Um, while they won't articulate in exactly the words that you will use there in terms of that, they, the mm. women described feeling disappointed with their bodies. Um, and in the qualitative paper, which I think Katie is um, keen to um, look at some of the data within that, is that women felt both let down by their bodies, let down, in their words, of um, their diagnosis of um, of gestational diabetes mm. and therefore um, not being able to achieve any breast milk, despite the fact mm. that we were at great pains. Um, every research midwife who worked in the team was absolutely schooled on making sure that we said to these women, we don't know how much is normal. In fact, nothing might be normal. So please, mm. please do not be concerned at all if you get nothing because that actually might be more normal. We just need to find out. And it was very interesting that women um, described or even wrote down in their diaries saying, I know you said if I get nothing, it's okay, but it doesn't feel like it. So women's mm. own expectations and uh, their beliefs that by purely having diabetes themselves, they have been, a, they describe themselves as being a risk to their babies, and now their bodies are further letting them down. Mm. Um, was was terribly uh, sad to read, and it it um, we need to be very careful about how we do interventions like this because these women are um, quite vulnerable in their emotions and their beliefs about how their bodies will work. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I think that was what was so interesting about the fact that you had done this huge, you know, randomized controlled trial and then took the the feedback, the the feelings of the women, the the real accounts. So we weren't just looking at the numbers and those outcomes, but then you also went on to publish this paper about the women's experiences. And I think that's so important. And that's why I wanted to really bring you on and talk about this now in the whole package of really that of um, what was happening what were these women saying when we think about a quarter of those women were getting zero that makes it feel like then it's pretty normal for for women to not achieve more than a mil and it's a blooming lot of work to feel <laughs> on top of everything like you've just said 
I'm not achieving it. And, and I think however much we as healthcare professionals or midwives who are with the women or lactation consultants, us as ourselves, we put amount, a certain amount of pressure on to achieve things or particularly when we think that this could do good for our babies once they've come, you know, once they've been born. Um, I'm waffling here, but it's just it's such an, an emotive kind of subject of we look at it one way and yet we need to be making sure that we are protecting the psychological well-being of the women we're working with. It is a difficult time for these women in terms of, um, for many of these women, it is the first time of an encounter with a diagnosis of diabetes. It wasn't what they were expecting. And there is a lot of monitoring and extra appointments and care. And, and they describe being quite fearful. This is something that they are quite nervous about, um, some of them. And so um, they now do want to almost, um, you know, make good. They want to atone almost for, mm. for what it is. But they do describe quite a burden of um, um, uh, their monitoring their diet. For some women, it's been an impetus to try and lose weight because, you know, they've been told their, their mm. weight is too high at this point. So they're trying to do so many things for the – they are trying to be the good mother. Mm. Um, and um, – with their expressing for some women, that was, I can be a good mother if I can express. Now, this is not everyone's views. And of course, we can't extrapolate the views of a few to the many, but I think it's important to understand the few because um, there may be other thoughts and other women out there with, with varying ideas. Um, so they um, do describe at times feeling let down by their bodies but other women conversely it's not all bad some women felt it very empowering saying well I have got diabetes I can't change that at the moment um, but actually I can do something about this so it actually gave them an avenue to uh, say radio this is where my energies are going to be I'm going to do all that other management but actually if I can make a difference in this for for my baby then that is absolutely what I'm going to do so I'm keen to keep the choice there for women that because for some women it really did mm. make them feel like um, they could they had some agency within this they could maybe change the outcome for their baby which is which is great but for me I suppose it's about tempering our excitement of yes this will happen for you because it's actually not the reality for some women um it's a it's a curve of there are variations of it all but um in interviewing the women the their diabetes care was actually so intertwined with how they saw themselves and their pregnancies and um and then antenatal expressing on top of that um, there were some women when we interviewed, they said, I could do this with my first baby, but there is no way I could have done this with my second baby. Mm -hmm. So the, the lives of um, women at home, be they in paid employment or caring for children, caring for elderly people, caring for um, many people in their lives, they, they described, could do it with my first, but I couldn't do it with my second. So it... it um, uh, it may be, I think, uh, with some caution that we say, just do this. Um, just is a really tricky word, I think, sometimes. Mm -hmm. It's easy to write it on a, um, you know, please do this when you go home if we really don't have an understanding of where her life is. And um, 
if it's maybe not just that easy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, really good points. And I think that's what we need to take away But it, as midwives. But I think that can be difficult because even before I came to Australia, we had, you know, the diabetes clinic and we were already having the, the appointments to bring the women in for to teach them antenatal hand expression and it becomes part of the care and I know that has grown kind of globally it's really it wasn't really in the US for a long time and then you were starting to talk about the trial and it was becoming it wasn't becoming more popular because of the trial but I know it was kind of they were both growing at the same time you were talking about the dame research we were seeing more and more of the US lactation consultants and and teams were starting to say hey look there's antenatal hand expression that's going on kind of in Australia and the UK and Europe. And so it's become a, this, this kind of intervention that's, that's kind of global now. Mm. But it's also outside of, outside of hospital settings and gestational diabetes. It's a thing that a lot of women who are even birthing outside the system are now doing a lot of doulas or supporting women to hand express. I'm, I'm not entirely sure what for. And, but it's a thing that a lot of women are doing in preparation for, I don't know what. I mean, so it is, it, you're right. It's just a, a, a thing now that's, that's across the board, an intervention that a lot of women are enacting during their pregnancy. Yep. More often than not, I think it is being driven by um, maternity care providers. Um, and I would say that it is your you're absolutely right, Rachel. It is not just for um, low-risk women with diabetes, but it has been extrapolated to all other women. Mm. There were some early conversations be, uh, between our research team and other, other people in the space, which is always good to have diverse ideas about who would antenatal expressing be good for. And for me, it's about, well, what is it going to change? What is it mm. going to make a difference mm -hmm. for? And I suppose when I read and see things about um, for women who've had um, uh, breast reduction surgery or um, are anticipating um, a baby with a, um, a cleft lip or palate or really some pretty major challenges around breastfeeding um, that if their antenatal preparation advice is about um, um, do antenatal expressing it'll give you breast milk. For me, we've lost the idea of well, what what is actually the care that this mother needs, and it is mm. well beyond that first twenty four hours. It is really about well, what is her breastfeeding going to look like in the future, and it's well beyond the hospital. Mm. And, and yes. I think that's where, for me, I feel. Um, as we've jumped on board with this intervention, which is really good for some women because mm -hmm. the outcome mm. is that we want to change mm. exclusivity for babies who've got a high risk of hypoglycemia mm. in the postnatal period. Um, but if it's not going to change the longer-term outcomes, um, then I feel like we're wasting valuable antenatal time to be discussing with women what their... Um, breastfeeding journey is going to look like because that's a much bigger conversation we can probably have much more effect in in helping women achieve their goals um, we know we have limited time within the antenatal space and we are all clambering to spend more time with women it's been incredibly difficult throughout the pandemic our time has mm -hmm. felt so restricted so um, it, 
I do get concerned that we have uh, latched on to this and we're missing the other things that we should be talking about um, and uh, which have got really good, strong evidence like um, ensuring that, you know, early first feed, skin-to-skin contact, really knowing about effectiveness of feeding, um, ascertaining, helping women understand how do they know if their baby's getting enough because we know the number one reason that women are concerned or often cessation of breastfeeding is around they don't believe they have enough breast milk. Mm-hmm. Um, now, if we can have good discussions with them and help them learn about that before their baby, we've probably actually made a much bigger difference for their mm-hmm. longer term because it's um, not just what happens in hospital. It's really about setting them up on a much longer, I hope, breastfeeding experience. And if we're looking at that, considering, so if, if it's just a group of women who do not have risk factors or haven't got some long-term planning about how this is going to improve outcomes, just regular pregnant women, if alongside what you found about not getting a lot of milk or, or you know, expressing there's practically nothing there for a lot of women, what does that do then to their capacity to breastfeed if they're attempting to express milk and not seeing anything and the main reason that women stop breastfeeding is thinking they've got no milk then are we setting women up for failure if it's outside of the group of women who are being supported because there's an actual purpose to expressing milk for their Mm -hmm. planning of you know after the baby's come for you for for Mm -hmm. the intervention i think we have to think well what what is the goal and what is going to help and if the goal is not clear, then you have to be concerned about um, will the intervention cause harm? And and while, you know, people mm-hmm. have said in many papers now, and I read in the guidelines, they're saying that, well, the DAME trial, you know, has shown to cause no harm. On the measures that we did, yeah. now if we yeah. take in the emotional yeah. measures of mm-hmm. women, the, are we uh, creating a situation where women are believing oh, well, I couldn't get any milk antenatally, therefore I probably, mm-hmm. there you go, I can't, it, breastfeeding's getting a bit tricky now in the postnatal time, there you go, I, I can't do it. Now, that would mm. be incredibly sad that a, a good-willed, um, what we people believe was good-willed advice actually may well have made women um, feed into what might be an anxious situation for them, and I think that would be, um, we need to be cautious in that space while remaining choice sits there for women. Um, but mm. we do have to help them interpret what is the the evidence. Um, and at the moment, there is no evidence that we can see that um, we can see it makes any difference to lactogenesis. So milk coming in, secretory activation, whatever you want to call it. Uh, we're looking at the data around three months and the data at three months is that it changed it does not make a difference to exclusivity of breast milk feeding at three months. So really the changes that we can see are very much in hospital, but we also have to think about harm is not only numbers, harm is how women feel. We also Mm. identified in all of the studies, um, and, and I do acknowledge that there are other researchers who are doing fantastic work in this space as well, and we've identified that um, hospital processes have let women down in terms of, of those women who did get milk, mm. um, despite the fact that they've got a very, as I say, a whopping great inhibitor of lactation called a placenta, um, <laughs> they have got some milk. Um, uh, 
is that hospitals lost milk. The milk yeah. got defrosted. Um, mm. Midwives and nurses um, forgot to use it. Mm-hmm. And the distress that was caused to those women was palpable. Um, and they, their hard work, um, mm. their, their words were, and I would have thought the midwives really believed that my milk was important. Don't they believe my milk is important? Yeah. So it was, it was um, difficult. So I think for these interventions, if we want to continue to do them, then we need to really back it up with good systems in the hospital. It doesn't lose milk. Yes. But, mm-hmm. um, and while all hospitals will say, of course we don't. Well, I would challenge that because I would say it happens. Um, uh, and we have to value the efforts of the women, because their efforts are huge. Their efforts are very real and it's in very difficult circumstances. Um, so it should never be forgotten. And we should um, be also very careful that we are not, um, when women are calling for assistance in a postnatal ward, and I see this, my office, when I am not working clinically, is on a postnatal ward. And I just know how busy and how hard it is out there. Mm. And particularly in that second 24 hours of an infant's life, they often get a bit more lively would be the words I'd use. (laughs) They're pretty keen for feeds. Um, We need to make sure that we don't use antenatal milk instead of helping a woman with a feed. Thank Mm. you. Because that that interruption to the normal breastfeeding process Mm. is actually a travesty. And I have Mm. witnessed it and seen it and... um, we're forgetting what our core is, that um, we need to be there to assist with the feeds and only, only use supplementation, whatever that is, if there are no other alternatives. And a breastfeed is uh, probably core to our, the best thing we can do to women and, and babies. Brilliant. I feel like I'm on a pulpit now, but anyhow, I, I do hear it every day. <laughs> Be on that pulpit. I'm so glad you you talked to that. That was that's what I wanted to bring you on for and pull you out was to be able to get mm. this whole story to look at this. Um, and I think you have answered that beautifully and just yeah, fantastic because it's really given us an understanding of of where it's come from, what the outcomes are, but also let's start making sure that we're we're looking at. The potential of what could happen with with women who are maybe seeing stuff on social media, doing antenatal expression without the support, um, and mm. then does that plant the seed of doubt, like like Rachel was saying, on, and like you have discussed as well. Mm. So I think mm. you've given us a really good whistle stop tour of the antenatal expression world. <laughs> well, I think there's there's a yeah. I mean, there's a lot of. Um, uh, people have got divergent ideas on this and this is not about taking away women's choice, but I think it's really important that clinicians are really properly looking at the evidence and, and helping women decide if this is going to be right for them and mm. um, and providing support along the way because a single intervention of showing how to do, show a woman how to do it once and then saying, see, when you come back to give birth, that actually was problematic as well because the women mm. uh, felt quite nervous about were they doing it right, was it wrong, am mm. I doing it wrong? So already we set up those things. So uh, so women quite rightly have the choice to do, um, but I think it is with their choices often driven by our vigour to say, um, hang on, you might like to try this, 
blah, blah, blah. And uh, so they, they see us as trusted um, people to give them good sound advice and so they should. Um, the empowerment that some women feel is fantastic, um, but it, it um, shouldn't overtake other really good evidence-based stuff as well. Brilliant. I think that's a good place to end, but I need to ask you the one question that I constantly get, which is, and I'm going to refer to you as the expert because in my eyes, you're my, you're my mentor in a long part of my lactation journey. So if we're talking antenatal hand expression and someone has made the choice and uh, wants to do that, should they be using a pump? Interestingly, during the study, they, um, the women were, when we went back to them, they told us they were wondering if they should. Mm-hmm. Um, so we uh, never mentioned the word pump, um, yet the advertising and marketing of pumps is so huge these days. Um, and look for, there are women who do need pumps for very good reasons. The world of women who are particularly with uh, babies in a special care NICU situation. However, um, uh, women, I think, are already using pumps for antenatal expressing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think we've got the evidence about whether we should or whether these women yeah. should be doing this. Um, I would be uh, thinking, is there a trial that needs to be done? Uh, my advice to women at the moment is, the only studies we've really got of all the studies that I know of really are only just using by hand. It's a simple, minimalist intervention to see. I think pumps pops it into a whole new space. We do know that women contract when they are expressing. And uh, there are some, we within our study, the women, uh, we had women doing their first expressing on CTG, so really looking at fetal heart in response to expressing, and we saw some pretty big pretty big contractions. Now, if you've got a well baby in there that's doing okay, it's probably not a problem, um, but then if you've got a baby who's uh, more compromised, you've got a placenta that is significantly compromised, you actually might be putting a baby under significant stress. Um, so mm. I think pumps... I, would, I don't advise any woman to use them at the moment. I think there is no need. And really, it sets us up into a big new space of, um, that may well be concerning. And we do know that uh, women are being advised from very low gestations um, down to 28 weeks. We mm-hmm. confirmed that, that it was. I think there was a belief that sometimes mm-hmm. if 36 is good, well, then 34 must be better. And if 34 yes. is good, then 32 must be even better. Yeah. And it's not true. Mm-hmm. So I think it needs to be, if it's done from the evidence, it's very late in the pregnancy and what they can get by hand with no concerns about volumes and knowing that at the moment we've got no evidence that volumes obtained antenatally have any relation to postnatal volumes at the moment. So really all of the good interventions of learning about breastfeeding, getting in contact with peer support, wherever you are, these have got really good, strong evidence of which then mm-hmm. antenatal expressing might be an extra, but it should not replace. So keep it simple and we use only when we need. Excellent. Thank you, 
that agrees with what I am <laughs> definitely telling people as well. But I wanted to get it from you and make sure that we just got that message out there for anyone who was thinking about pumps or had seen anything because ah, wonderful. That is mm. brilliant. Anita, I am so glad that we have brought you on to discuss this because it's something that is close to my heart of obviously having worked with you during that trial, but not on the trial and um, information that needs to get out there. And I, I really love that we're able to put out the views of the women, the the research, and also because we know that our audience is so vast and different from different walks of life within this field. I think this is an important topic that we've talked about. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, look, I'm I'm so thrilled. I feel like I've talked a lot, but I really hope that it clarifies a bit about what our work is. But I also acknowledge the the work of every, everybody else, as they say, when you're a student, you are standing on the shoulders of others, and um, that is definitely what I'm doing. Um, you learn from where everyone else has done and you try and take it that little bit further. And I know that others will take our work further as well. And Rachel, you would have seen that particularly with your work. People grow on your work. And Katie, you've had things that have been fantastic that people have taken forward. So um, we are just a point in time that is hoping to get the message out there for many. Thank, Thank you. you so much. Thank you. What a blooming awesome episode, bursting at the seams with golden nuggets. As always, we hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, make sure you head on over and leave a comment and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast. Every one of those babies helps us spread this information to those who need to hear it. Plus, they're totally lush and they filleth my cuppeth over. Thank you guys so much. We also have a Patreon donation site where you can sponsor the content from this podcast. All the links to this and everything from the episode can be found in our show notes. And as always, before I let you go, here it comes, the bloopers. Yeah, I've done Hogmanay, which means that you can talk in shorthand in someone's front yard. What? I don't even know these, these rules. And she's from closer to Scotland than me. Hogmanay. Or maybe I'm just is. saying it very... Yeah, yeah, where you end up... No, not Hogmanay, but what? What's the shorthand well, in people's backyards? Well, after midnight, and you're well versed, you are, you're talking shorthand, you're ending up in people's front yards and you're best friends with everybody. <laughs> oh. Get myself there. It's the same... Pres- yeah, it's, it's the same process of any late night wild party. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Got it. I'm with it. All right, I'm hot now. Wait, so are you stripping off? Oh, oh she's all right. Oh, she's, no. oh, she's got a long teeth, a long teeth shoe shirt. I've got like, <laughs> you know, we're talking about people not telling you that it's being filmed, right? That's happened a few times to me. And the first time it was a full on international webinar and I was doing a session. And I thought it was just audio. So I turned up just after yoga, sweating, like with my hair scraped back, like really not look. And I just like, was, oh, is this like video as well? And he's like, yes. And, I'm like, um, and it was like 
do I ask? To, can you just stop while I go and sort myself out? Or do I just go with it? So I just went with it. <laughs> Sweaty. Lush. I would say you just got to just own it. Yeah, exactly. Just be like, I'm yeah. glowing, baby. Yeah, this is as good as I can. You would have rocked it anyway. They're there to see what you say, not see how you look. What? <laughs> That's right, Katie. They're there to see what you say. Or, or possibly even hear what you say. Look, same, same. <laughs> oh, God. Wondering which of my courses is for you? Breastfeeding and lactation, the fundamentals has been designed for everyone working in the birthing field or those on their journey to becoming breastfeeding specialists or IBCLCs. This course gives you seven hours of CPD and is packed with reflective learning, case studies and some pretty tough at times quizzes to make sure this stuff sticks. It also means you can meet me monthly in my live Q&A. This is my course that I hope will fill in the gaps that traditional breastfeeding education has left out. I want you completing this, feeling confident to support any breastfeeding or lactation challenge of those in your care. But wait, I have another course called The Feeding Couch. Who's this for? Currently, around 80 to 96% of women decide to breastfeed during their pregnancy, but by just eight weeks after birth, a third to almost 50% of those women have stopped breastfeeding. And of those women who stopped, 80% say they stopped breastfeeding before they wanted to. Learning about breastfeeding during pregnancy has been shown to improve breastfeeding self-confidence and improve the rate of exclusive breastfeeding in the short and the long term. I believe every mum should be able to choose how she wants to feed her baby and for how long. Knowledge is power. That's why I created The Feeding Couch, designed to be watched during pregnancy or for new mums and parents who may be struggling right now with breastfeeding. The content is in step-by-step, binge-worthy whilst pregnant or for those most tired of days postpartum. Totally easy to find exactly what you need and dip in and out when you need a breastfeeding answer quickly. And for you, beautiful podcast listener, there is a 10% discount off both courses when you use the code POD10, that's P-O-D-10, at checkout. To find out more, hop on over to my website, katiejames.site, and have a look at the incredible content waiting for your lucky peepers. (laughs) 